And then there were the newspaper comics, the ones that, you know, your folks bought the paper and it was just all this news stuff. Maybe there was sports in the back. And and then somewhere in the middle, usually, yeah, newspaper comics. Uh, perhaps a dying thing, but that's what we're talking about. And it, uh, it doesn't just, I mean, in the U.S., that's how they're presented. And uh, we may hear, because Doc Solis is in the house, some other takes on uh, this concept. Because in different places, different things happened. And uh, our America Central popular cultural view that I uh, often am finding myself stuck in, uh, what they do here. Uh, less and less as time goes on, although they still try to, is to homogenize us off from anything that might influence us away from uh, the American product. I mean, the, the, the whole Eurovision thing, that was as much as they could pretend that that didn't exist and it was no big deal. I, I don't think the average American still has any idea what that is at all. And it's, but more people than ever do. So, the progress in a small way. Anyways, as I said, Doc Sleez is with us. Of course, Frank Edward Nora is with us. And uh, I am sure I will have some uh, interesting comments on the thing as uh, comics and newspaper comics and nostalgia are uh, not quite wheelhouse anymore because so much has been discovered since I was really hitting the books on like old newspapers. Real people got access to these newspaper archives and many lost strips uh, have been found at least partial runs um, many artists it turns out did uh, other little side things that only appeared for short times in one or two newspapers uh, that this field of study has expanded greatly and as everything falls into the public domain of course uh, these study materials are in the hands of the many and that's a beautiful thing so with all that in mind as you may guess we are going to get right to it here on the overnight scape central the show that you should have been on and could have been on and uh you can be on next week's show or you could do a follow-up to this week's program uh I, I can let you do that. Uh, I'll give you all the information on that on the far end of this program. And you really should uh, join us here and be one of the uh, Overnight Scape Central family of commentators. Uh, it, it is indeed great fun. Um, and with that, let's hand it over across the ocean to Doc Slees. It's been a long time since I read a newspaper that actually had any, uh, carried any any strips in it well i don't think i mean i'm, I'm a guardian reader these days and i'm really I, I don't think the guardian carries any comic strips anymore i mean at one time within within recent memory it had its own satirical comic strip drawn by um steve bell called if and um and of course, it carried the Venerable American political cartoon Doonesbury, 
if was discontinued some years ago and I couldn't even tell you whether it still carries Doonesbury. I haven't seen Doonesbury in, a, in an age. But when I was a kid, um, my parents used to get the Daily Mirror, which in common with all British daily tabloids of the time, used to carry a number of regular comic strips. And... Um, You know, uh, they're always in that little, the traditional three-frame format. You got three frames every day, and um, it, you know, to give an idea, that, I mean, the sort of film, uh, sort of, of of strips you'd find in British newspapers. I mean, for looking specifically at the Mirror, I remember. Um, the Daily Mail, um, which was otherwise a, a, an absolutely, isn't how it's always been, an absolutely awful right-wing tabloid. Um, and when I say right-wing, this is the tab, this is the newspaper that um, in 1938, I think it was, had Hitler as its man of the year. And I don't think its politics have changed much since then. But it used to carry some good comic strips. Uh, Modesty Blaze, the Peter O'Donnell written script uh, strip was published there for many years. And for many years they had a um, James Bond comic strip which adapted, I think, all of the um, Ian Fleming novels and stories, short stories. Um, not the films, but the original, um, I say, novels and short stories. And did them far more faithfully, obviously, than the films did. And uh, those, are, those, a lot of those have been published subsequently in album form. And uh, as same as with Modesty Blaze. The other one I remember from the Daily Mail was Fred Bassett, which is a humorous strip about a Bassett hound called Fred and his owner and various adventures Daily Mirror how to get back to that the Daily Mirror as I recall had always used to run three comic strips you know one on top of the other in traditional form they were to the right of the problem page, no, reader's letters page with reader's queries, you know, not the normal lead, reader's letters of DSR, today I heard the first cuckoo of spring, but the ones of people writing in with, um, and they weren't serious, they, they had several different, in the mirror over years, had several different um, problem pages, the most famous one being Dear Marge, which the which dear old Marge Proops was their agony ant for donkey's years. And they had these other, other sort of more, um, less serious readers' queries. Letter column to the left of that with the comic strips and above them, and rightly, with the horoscopes and things like that. To the right, rather, yeah, comic strips to the right of, it, of the column, above the comic strips of the horoscopes. <laughs> the three strips I remember it carrying were Andy Cap, 
who, of course, is a very well-known strip about a northern layabout who always has that big cap on so you can't actually see his most of his comes down over his forehead so you never see his eyes so he's his northern layabout who's always down the pub playing darts with his mate chalky white and you know and, and his much put upon wife um, who has to deal with him coming home drunk and spending all days you know sleeping off on the sofa and whatever that's a perennially popular strip is even a live-action TV adaptation of it with James Bolan. There's also another strip called The Parishes, <clears throat> which is about a gang of kids, and it was aimed at kids. Um, the most popular catch of that, though, were that they had dogs and other sort of pet animals who also, every so often, the strip would go off at a tangent with the adventures of these animals who spoke to each other and whatever. You know, they all had distinct characters. Um, that also was made. That was made into a uh, an animated series of, of short animated films. It's about five minutes long for the BBC. Many years later, but the strip, the one I most remember, was Garth. Garth was an incredibly long running comic strip. It ran, from, I think, from from part way through the war. I think. I think 42 or 43, all the way through to the late 90s. Apparently, there have been revivals of it since. Um, there was a version in, in, the, in the early 2000s, in the noughties. Um, there was a version of it ran on the online, on the, on the um, Daily Mirror's website, on its online edition. Anyway, Garth. Garth probably isn't as well remembered by the general public these days as those Daily Mail strips like James Bond or Modesty Blaze because very few, as far as I'm aware of the Garth stories, have been um, published in album form. So since the strip stopped running regularly in the Daily Mirror, um... He sort of faded from the public consciousness somewhat. And uh, and it's diehards like me who still remember him, remember from my childhood, um, basically. Garth, though, was a very... Uh, it captured my imagination as a kid for a lot of reasons. One, it had a lot of fantastical content in it. And it was odd to find that, slightly unusual, to find such content in a paper like the Daily Mirror. The Daily Mirror, from about the mid-30s onwards, when it came under new ownership, <clears throat> was, still is, um, a left-wing tabloid aimed fairly and squarely at the working classes. It's always seen it since then, it's seen itself as the voice of the working classes of, of, of the UK. And it's always tried to combine um, the usual tabloid sort of stories about, it'll run stories about celebrities and sports stories and whatever. 
and the usual sensational headlines. But it combines that at its best. It's always tried to combine that with hard-hitting political reporting and investigative reporting. And despite um, an ill-advised attempt to move down market to compete with um, its rival, the Sun, in the in the nineties, and again in the early two thousands, it's returned to that format now. Because the Mirror is one of only two um, daily newspapers. Yeah, printed in print form in this country that isn't right of centre, the other being The Guardian. Um, it has published in recent time some terrific um, political articles, um, some very good, uh, yeah, particularly exposing things like the so-called party gate of, you know, big fat party animal Boris Johnson, Partying on down through lockdown, despite the fact he was the one who introduced laws that said you couldn't do that. And many other sort of political scandals it's uncovered, always to the embarrassment and discomfort of the Conservative Party, obviously. And as this long tradition of investigative reporting, um, journalists like Paul Foote and John Pilger used to work there, produced some um, big stories. If you remember the um, the killing fields of Cambodia, Campuchia's is now known, um, that was exposed to the West in harrowing detail by John Pilger's uh, series of articles. Very hard hitting stuff. Remember the running when I was when I was younger, as a kid. But getting back to the comics, so that, that's why against that background, it always seems slightly jarring have this fantastical uh, comic strip running in the pages of the Daily Mirror. Garth <clears throat> himself started as this enigmatic, he's a, he's a big handsome sort of muscle-bound chap, and he started this when he first appeared as this enigmatic character who was washed up on a raft on an island during World War Two, because he'd been the captain of some Royal Navy vessel that had been torpedoed and sunk. And he finds himself involved in um, a, uh, a war there between these beautiful women natives and their despotic male ruler. Uh, <laughs> and the stories went on from there. But you're offered no real explanation of who he is. And that came later as, as the strip unfolded <clears throat> throughout the war years. Um, it was eventually an expert. He got an origin story. He was washed ashore on a remote Scottish island in a coracle as a baby and was adopted by a couple who, uh, who brought him up as their own shades of Superman. Uh, and he had not found to have enormous strength. I'll say later on he becomes a naval captain etc like he's a captain of a naval vessel whether he actually held the rank captain is another issue and i'm not getting into that <laughs> use of the term captain as both rank and role is something i will not get into now but further than that then after that as time went on then we had the the first really fantastical development in the story 
in the, uh, a, a scientist friend of his hypnotically regresses him back through past lives. And we learn that Garth has lived many lives throughout history, had many amazing adventures throughout history. Which get relate, relate to us. And as time goes on, he, he, the, even in the present day, some of the um, adventures, foes he faces become ever more supernatural and fantastical. Um, and he finds a sort of guardian angel in, in this mysterious figure of Astra, who is this one of the, the last of a kind of these ancient beings that were worshipped as gods and goddesses back in the past. And she at one time had been known to the Romans as Venus and the Greeks as Aphrodite and so on. And she's the last last survivor. Well, she's she's the last survivor in its in their purest form of her race. Um, there is another who is evil, <laughs> who was once once known to the Romans as Apollo, and he's turned evil. And um, obviously, um, she has to, with Garth's help, fight him at one point. And she turns up intermittently to help Garth out when he needs help in various stories, uh, when he faces sort of forces that are too great even for him as a, in his, his form as a mortal man, she'll turn up to help him out. He also summons Garth, he gets involved with aliens, travels to um, various places in outer space, other planets and whatever, um, and in the course of that, we learn one of these things. We learn that in, we we get more on his origin story. That in fact, he is the offspring of um, an alien space explorer and an Earth woman. Uh, <laughs> for whatever reason. Had to be, was cast adrift in the coracle to be found by these people who grew, etc., etc. And that was many years down the line. It was probably by the 1960s they finally got to that, that particular uh, origin story for him. But that was the fascination, one of the fascinations for me as a child with Garth, the comic strip, because it it's very such. Every some some adventures could see him um, dealing like with normal criminal activities and criminal masterminds and whatever. Then the next thing he'd be in space. Another one he'd regress into a past life, and um, he'd be back in I don't know ancient Rome or somewhere. And next thing you know, he'd be involved in some kind of he'd be he'd be catapulted into the far future, or he'd be involved with some kind of supernatural threat or, or, you know, and you just never knew from story to story what you were going to get. And obviously with only three strips a day, three, three panels a day, um, they unfolded over several weeks, or even months, these stories. And they were always rather beautifully drawn. The artist I most remember was the last who drew him in his, his original Daily Mirror run, a guy called Martin Asprey, who was quite a, uh, I think he's still around, 
was a pretty well-known comic strip artist. And um, he took over from Frank Bellamy, who was also famous for drawing Dan Dare back in the 50s for Eagle Comics. And Martin Asprey had a not dissimilar style. Perhaps slightly more modern, if you see what I mean, in it, more contemporary in his style than Frank Bellamy. In the, it's, it was, Martin Asprey was, was, was more contemporary, his style of, of art, with 70s and 80s um, boys' comics in this country. And uh, he drew other strips for other magazines. And after Garth ended, he had a change of career. And he became a storyboard artist for films. In fact, he storyboarded several James Bond films, interestingly. Wow, that's that that's fascinating. Uh, one of our great comic book, I mean, the guy who created Marvel Comics and a lot of the elements that became modern DC Comics, uh, Jack King Kirby, spent a lot of his later career doing storyboards, but for animation studios. Uh, he, he never got to do that big, big Hollywood movie. And yes, some of the Marvel movies pay homage to him. Uh, but that's a whole different story because uh, we're talking our newspaper comics here. And yet people like Frank Bellamy, uh, him I'm familiar with. And interest, I mean, up till a certain point, you could stretch that all comics in the UK were newspaper comics as they were not that fine American comics are smaller uh, they used to be like a little newspaper filled with comics when I started buying 2000 AD uh, to, to read Judge Dredd that was the big first UK import that I think I remember being exposed to except of course in all those history of comics they would show you you know that the Brits had comics and it was like Bino, and they'd make sure they showed you the other Dennis the Menace. But yeah, we were very limited. And of course, Modesty Blaze, we heard of, and those James Bond ones. Um, and Andy Cap, which was Australian, that much I know. I remember they ran it in our local newspaper. And because it was a comic, I read it. And I just. I was not getting it. I didn't understand the drinking and the gambling references because I was just a little kid and I didn't know anybody who did any of those things. All of the dialect stuff was probably completely... But I, I even had a couple of the paperbacks because I was that just enamored of the form itself. Uh, I think a lot of the stuff I read, well, the stuff like that, I mean, I don't think there was too much uh, sexual content there, but uh, the social content was going completely over little PQ Rivers' heads. And, and uh, Another little side note, uh, is, is getting off of newspaper comics to just comics, all the best American comic book writers of the last 30 years, uh, it's right down the line, I'd say 90% of them or more are Brits. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and you mentioned Doonesbury, which just... I used to be a regular Doonesbury reader. I had all the books 
uh, almost it's, it's, I could read a run of the comic strip at one time with all of the trade paperbacks and the little paperbacks that I had accumulated over time. And at a certain point, it just, I don't even know what happened because there were characters I remember being very engaged with and following. And it's probably been 25 years since I looked at a Doonesbury strip. Very uh, interesting. And then, of course, there's my pet peeve, Peanuts, which Charles Schultz, hope, uh, thank, I hope he can't see from wherever he is. I mean, to take somebody's artwork and squeeze it, losing its aspect ratio so it can fit on a printed page where you would like it to. I mean, Charlie Brown's head to people who read the newspapers in certain parts of the country is not round. It is an oval. And that, uh, that, that just, that hurts. That hurts me. That hurts me a whole lot. But yes, I, I always associate he, that's he, he is the artist I most remember from Garth. Um, because he's the one who drew the majority of strips that I, I can remember um, from when I was in my teens. Because the other thing, and it's particularly so when Art Martin Asprey took over the, uh, <laughs> the strip, the other is what, as a young man, had a certain appeal, Garth. It's a fair amount of uh, tasteful nudity in it. Uh, female characters frequently beard their breasts in it which you know uh, <laughs> remember this was a time when you didn't get much nudity on, on despite the reputation of the bbc everywhere else in the world you really think didn't get that much nudity on the <laughs> on television and you had to be allowed by your parents to set very late to see it if you <laughs> if you're underage <laughs> And the Daily Miracle, so as I recall, at that time, the Daily, it wasn't until quite quite some time, it was probably the late 80s, nice, the Daily Mirror, in response to the Sun's page three girls, start having its own topless um, models. Oh, I think it was page five of the Mirror they used to have them. And at first, um, originally, when the, when the Mirror started having these girls on page five, they were not topless. Um, they're in their underwear or swimsuits. But anyway, eventually they were topless to compete with the sun. And now, of course, no newspapers can because you can get it all free online. Pornography's free online, you know. Kids don't know they're born these days, you know. <laughs> well, I think it takes some of the some of the, the thrill out of it. Uh, I mentioned before, as I've said before, that, that's uh, that's my thing. I, I think it's, it's taken the, the thrill and, and the um, excitement out of pornography that um people see too much kids see too much too soon these days and i say that only out of envy um now but yeah that i won't deny and martin asprey was really good at drawing those those uh ladies in either diaphanous costumes or topless you know because you never saw more than the you know breasts and a bit of bare behind very tastefully done. And Martin Asprey, his style is all flowing lines. 
and curves. And, uh, it's a um, very distinctive style that you can, I can generally recognise anywhere. As you can with all good comic strip artists, well, all good artists, but, you know, particularly with comic strips. So, yeah, so it's an interesting thing. Garth being there, this, this strip with all these amazing things going on in it. Um, in the Daily Mirror, well, in any British newspaper to find that going on, but, but particularly in, in the Daily Mirror, in other aspects, like to be seen as um, this sort of, you know, campaigning, cutting edge of political campaigning, um, you know, working class paper supporting left-wing politics or left-to-centre politics. It has, since 1945, staunchly supported the Labour Party through thick and thin, and I have enormous respect and admiration for the Mirror for doing that. But, yeah. So, yeah, um, Garth, obviously had something about it that I still remember it to this day. I mean, I had to do a little bit of research to, to, to help me jog my memory and a lot of the details of it. Um, but it is interesting. It must have quite an impact on me. Um, in that I remember it so well. Yeah, you know, I, I remember a lot of the themes of it. I remember the how he looked. I remember the, you know, some of the artists. I remember their styles. Um, it is fascinating that um, I remember the regular characters. Uh, it is interesting. It had this impact on me in those, those three panels a day that um, I recall it. It was just such an, I think that was, it was such an unusual strip to find in a newspaper, in a daily newspaper. I talked to the, I, I talk about references to the um, tasteful nudity. To be fair, there was a tradition of that in the Daily Mirror's comic strips. In that, one of its previous most famous comic strips, which for a while, during the war, was contemporaneous with Garth, was Jane, um, about the uh, sort of naive girl, um, Jane, who has various adventures, um, obviously during the war. She has all sorts of adventures in uniform, dealing with German spies and the lot. That continued after the war with other... Sort of, there have been spin-off films based, B-movies, and bigger budget movies based on it subsequently. Um, but it's very popular. And one of the reasons for popularity was frequently... Um, and it was revived, actually, and ran alongside Garth again. For a, for a while, I can't remember which of the other strips it displaced um, <clears throat> for a while, but it did, and it, it returned to the mirror for a while, <clears throat> but was never as popular, obviously, because it had this novelty, in, particularly in the 40s, when it was running during the war, because frequently all of Jane's clothes would fall off for some reason or be torn off, and she'd be there in her underwear. Uh, <laughs> Which, you know, 
apparently it was a huge morale booster for British service and overseas, you know. Help win the war, you know, the sight of a cartoon girl in underwear. Well, I suppose they're desperate out there, you know, at the front line or whatever. Um, and famously, I think it was 44 or 45, it was after D-Day, um, in one of the strips, she appears naked, except she's getting in the bath and steam obscures all the relevant bits. But the fact... That she was, yeah, with a good imagination, she was naked. Uh, <laughs> allegedly, this is the story put about at the time. Propaganda, obviously. That um, that particular strip, the sight of her naked, had um, inspired the morale of British troops so much. One particular unit advanced like 20 miles or something into Germany after seeing that some such nonsense. <laughs> There you go. Um, as I say, she continued after the war for a while, but um, was dropped and then came back again. Um, but yes, uh, yeah, she was this blonde girl who was always, ra I say she was rather, she was naive and unworldly uh, and innocent, uh, basically, abroad in the world. You know, rather candide-like and adventurous, except obviously nowhere near as sophisticated as that as this was a three-panel-a-day comic strip, you know, running an international newspaper. But there you go. That's um, that's my memories for the, what they're worth of British newspaper comic strips. So uh, on that note, I say back to you, PQ. Thanks so much, Doc. There, There's so much to UK comics I yet have to explore up the whole world war two and 50 stuff especially up that there's just i guess now if you do a little digging you can get him but in in my wheelhouse days of buying huge compendiums it, it just wasn't a there were a couple of dan dare books that passed through my possession over the years and oh those were beautiful it just that there, there was a care to art that I remember being very uh, remarkable to me. But uh, now I, I just recently got my hands on some Steve Canyon stuff. That was, uh, well, the Milt Kniff, one of the great and most highly regarded quasi-realistic, stylistic newspaper comic artists, famous for Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon. And uh, I'm, uh, I found some Steve Canyon books through my uh, uh, interconnection with books. And these are marvelous stories. And uh, I always liked that kind of thing. Buzz Sawyer was a great early action strip. I mean, even Dick Tracy and Little Orphan Annie. Those strips, if you read them in continuity... It, it's great storytelling and that 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 dick tracy stuff can be very lurid let me tell you uh chester gould uh would push the limit of what you would expect to be in some newspaper with kids reading oh man tough times tough strips tough guys yeah, Dick Tracy, uh, I guess he doesn't date well. I mean, I remember that Warren Beatty movie, which is 
in and of itself, uh, a, especially if you go back, a pop culture gold mine. But uh, as far as a reflection of Dick Tracy and Chester Gould's vision, like a fever dream version, maybe. Um, anyhow, uh, we're moving along. And surprise, I, the, thank goodness it came in in time. Uh, Google of late has been uh, delaying delivery and I'll get something in my inbox that was mailed four hours earlier and it's trying to tell me that it arrived in my mailbox four hours ago when I darn well know I hit refresh and make sure but uh, something's going on there, uh, and I don't think it's local. Uh, I don't know whether their servers are, uh, whether they're carefully reviewing anything I receive to make sure that there's nothing. Um, I'm not trying to take over the world or overthrow. Who knows? In, in 2022, quite frankly, I'm surprised some hammer has not come down on me for saying or doing something online. Um, I would have never been in Facebook jail. Uh, I The only thing I've ever been banned from, I banned myself uh, a few years ago. I just it turned off my Twitter, and that was the end of that. Kept sending me, you only have three days, only two days. Oh, and it's gone forever. Oh boy, goodbye. And it, I don't know, even if Elon Musk, which is what's going on now, if you're listening to this at a non contemporary time, uh, Twitter uh, is in the process theoretically of being bought by Elon Musk, but I don't think it's going to go through. Uh, I I don't I think he has revealed a an empty and worthless husk that he will uh, sh- hand back to whoever wants it, and, and t- t- their people still go there. Their people, and it will be a diminished version of itself. And it'd be nice for uh, somebody like Elon Musk to clean up all our social media just a little bit, because. There's some insidious stuff going on all the way around there. Uh, Spooky. Yeah. But luckily, we have Frank. We have our overnight scape underground. And uh, Chad Bowers popped up in my inbox. So we have a contribution from the incredible True Facts of Space master himself and um, without further ado uh, let me give the floor over Oh, I've read Beetle Bailey. I've read Beetle Bailey at Oxford. Beetle Bailey. Mr. Mort Walker. He had a very clean style, which I appreciate. I always like seeing the clean graphics and the backgrounds that are just a single color often, or simple drawings indicating a canteen or a mess hall or a barracks sarge says gee my stomach's growling probably needs a lot of food (laughs) time for breakfast sarge says beetle gotta do my exercises first one two three four 
46. How can anyone who exercises like that be so fat? Because he does more belly building than bodybuilding. And the Sarge has a big old tray of food. In another issue, Beetle was seen saying, which indicates a strong likelihood. Where's Zero going? Taking a stroll. Hello, little squirrel. What a nut. What a nut, little squirrel. Your friend, Bunny, wants to join us. Come here, Mr. Bunny. Look, here comes Mr. Possum. And Mrs. Groundhog. Hi there, little birdies. One thing Zero will never be is lonely. <laughs> Beetle, uh, Beetle lived, worked at uh, Camp Swampy. Now, this was a real live uh, army base. In fact, it was the uh, the army base that Mort Walker uh, spent some time at. It was called something else, but around 1941, he would have been there. And by the late 40s, it had grown to uh, to just stupendous size. It was like 40,000 people there. And uh, they had, I think, about 16 different churches and chaplains they could go to. Uh, they had five screens, a two-screen uh, and three single-screen theaters. They had a bowling alley. They uh, had their own newspaper. They had their own radio station. And uh, they were vastly larger than the nearest town. So when you're reading Beetle Bailey, you can know that it takes place in a uh, an atemporal version of Camp Swampy. And this was in the Ozarks. And uh, although the Army named it something else, all the all the GIs, wet, damp, socks soaked, called it Camp Swampy. Hey, Beetle. Uh, didn't you call me, Sarge? Yeah, bring that pad over there. Here's your pad. No, get me a pencil. Bring me a soda. I'll need a hamburger. Get me a piece of chocolate cake. I forgot. The army's full of guys trained to follow orders no matter what. You know, the comedy being that uh, some crazy thing happened. All these guys are lined up outside of his office. They, they heard him calling these things from outside the window. So now Sarge is sitting there, and he's got this, uh, you know, oh, brother, you know, it's a living kind of look on his face. And he's like, I forgot. The army is full of guys trained to follow orders no matter what. And one of the things I like about Beetle is uh, I really understand the environment that it's in from 
watching Gomer Pyle on television, from pretending to be a G.I. Joe figure, stories from my father from boot camp and other relatives. This all seemed very much like a, a real place that I could relate to. And as I would be learning quite a bit about the Army, I felt like Beetle was uh, sort of my eyes and ears, if, uh, if not just a funny thing to read. But it gave it a uh, sort of a realistic sense of, of place in my head. And I just enjoy getting lost in them, even strangely, perhaps, uh, the ones that aren't funny. You know, they, they don't have to be funny. That's the uh, that's an important thing about a comic, a comic strip. It can be funny, but it's also a, uh, a window into this other world. And there are rules and expectations and setups in that world. And it generally builds upon itself uh, in, a, in a way that if you were flipping through a, a collection of comic strips. After about four or five of them, you feel like you've been walking around the base. You've been there for a while, so you're in the world. And as you start to pick up on the names and character traits of the main characters, you you feel more uh, welcomed in and a part of it, and, and the escape gets larger. It's reading comic after comic these little moments of time uh, highlighted for us, as you cycle through them all, there's this bigger world behind it where all of these things are merely excerpts from. Naturally, what happens uh, next is that in the uh, tender recesses in your heart and mind, you, you start developing your own stories about what's going on. Let's join Beetle now. Beetle! To the mailbox! Get moving! Stomp, stomp, stomp. That Sarge burns me up. Do this! Do that! Deliver this! Get me that! Okay, I'm only a private. But he acts like an emperor. How would he like it? Snorkel, get moving. I gotta see what that looks like. I'm sick of your loafing, Snorkel. Yes. What if he heard that? Gives me cold chills to think what he would do. Soldiers have been shot for less. He's putting the letter in the U.S. mail. I'm uh, back, Sarge. That beetle, a one-block one block walk, completely tires him out. Hilarity. And furthermore, if you don't get busy, I'll break you apart. Ever notice how happy he is? Yeah, that's what amazes me. How can a mouth like that talk so much gold without any worthless thought? I can't pull it out. Weeds! 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 And here's the general coming in. 
What's the matter with the youth of today? Well, in my day, we'd take this thing out in our teeth. He's biting on the uh, hand grenade. Or the hand grenade. Yeah, it's a hand grenade. He's biting the pin on the hand grenade. And throw! And just as he throws his teeth, the old general's teeth go flying with them. Here's the old general. Sergeant, you must do something about that stomach. Yes, sir. So here he is at the counter. Hey, why don't you give me a sundae with cream cheese on top? Empty. And I just made a fresh pot of coffee. And there's the Sarge. He just drank it all. And we didn't see the... Uh, the general's teeth get blown up, but I bet you they did. Let's uh, talk about Hagar the Horrible, or Hagar as I always called him. You know, it's created by uh, Dick Brown around 1973 or so. So I've known him for a long time. He's Shaggy, overweight Viking, always hoping to successfully raid England or France. He never gets it right. Uh, so in that way, he's sort of a, a lovable loser. I guess do you remember the uh, you remember the born loser in comic strips? I remember as a kid when I first uh, found that. I'm this kid, you see. I'm looking in the paper and I'm reading this comic strip. and This guy, just this normal-looking guy, and it's called The Born Loser? I feel like it's awful cruel, you know? It's like, man, it, you know, what, what if you were a born loser? Jeez, to be a born loser, that, that would be horrible. I guess everything that happens to him in life is it's just uh you know it's just a loss and he's even got this family shield and they put it right there in the front of the comic strip there's this loser family shield and it's uh kind of like rough drawings of like a guy i think there's a little man in there cranking a lawnmower and it chops his foot off and uh, you know another guy's trying to mix a daiquiri and his, his fingers get cut off. It was just uh, every which way he turns, you know, he's a born loser. Here's, uh, here's Hagar the Horrible by Dick Brown. Hagar. I'm happy that so many of you showed up today. As you know, today I plan to assemble a new crew. Now, before I choose... My new crew, let me say this. I want men who will make sacrifices. Men who won't let anything bother them. Men who will take orders, even when they disagree. Men who are used to facing danger without flinching. In short, I want married men. Married men for my crew. 
Hagar, the horrible. Let's talk about the most manager. Let's just bring an elder back to talk. That would be nice, dear. Oh, these are those teaching pennies. More like three of them. Taco life. I can't believe it. There's no one around. They're already calling the troops. Well, looks nice. Okay. Problem there is the uh, letters were too small to read. Just making stuff up. Hagar! The horrible. I envy Nellum. Really, really married well. Hagar, there's one thing I don't like about you. But I'm the toughest of the tough. Bravest of the brave. What's not to like? You're the loudest of the loud. Hagar, the horrible. Hagar, the horrible. What the? Who put that rock there? They're sailing across the dark sea in a long boat. The anchor must be dragging. Someone cut the anchor line. This is the third time this month. Lucky Eddie, you found the anchor before you can do it again. At your service, boss. Dives over. He goes down to the bottom, and he meets this beautiful mermaid, and they're kissing. And he says, we've got to stop meeting like this. I have no idea what it means. You've been a good friend. I've been super impressed with your mineral qualities. Oh, thank you. Not a chance. Will your wife understand? Now they're hugging. Now they're snuggling. Now she's embracing him. Now she's swimming off the island. Are you sure I've got such a long nose? Not really. Mermaids can't really breath the air for more than ten minutes. So, you know, after kissing him, the mermaid became disturbed by the, uh, the smell of his hair. Pop, pop, boom, boom. Good Lord. All right, let me... Let me switch this over here. I gotta get it in the uh, photos app. photo app. Please tell me those sounds are not coming from my beloved wife. Bang! Crash! Hagar, wake up! There's an intruder in the kitchen. I'll club him. Yuck! This cherry pie tastes like poison. Now Hagar's wife is saying, "I'll club him." See, apparently, he went down to uh, kill the uh, intruder. Instead, he opened the fridge, 
He found a pie his wife had made. Undoubtedly, she plans to serve it tomorrow, perhaps to some guests. Maybe her mother's coming in town. Hagar goes and just eats the whole thing. You know, and if you were a uh, if you were a lady that this had happened to, you might open the Sunday funnies and read that, and you'd be like, "This applies to me. This." you know, resonates with me heavily, so much so, so much uh, resonating that you would uh, go get some silly putty. You know, silly putty comes in eggs. And when you get the silly putty, you want to stretch it and squeeze it, and then you want to flatten it out. And if you put it right on top of the uh, newspaper-printed comic strip, Kind of smash that uh, silly putty out. And now if you slowly peel it back, you'll have a copy of the comic. The ink from the art will transfer directly to the silly putty. And uh, the silly putty usually comes in a bicolored egg. So what you could do is, is you could uh, kind of gently fold that up save that comic for later and enjoy it and laugh with it, you know, at a later date. Oh, man, Silly Putty was one of the miracle uh, toys, novelties of my youth, along with those little, it would look like a little tiny pellet, and you would put it in water, and it'd be some sort of foam it was made out of, make this giant, creature that of course would deteriorate into nothing in no time but the whole process of that all those cool toys of uh, well my day which i guess on sugwise i'm one of the old geezers maybe me and dave in kentucky uh and they get younger from there uh, the grand old man of the Ansug, up to remembering his silly putty and dreams of taking all the comic books that I could never have and preserving them in sheets of silly putty because, you know, that was the available medium. We didn't have scanners and internets. We had carbon paper and ditto paper. Oh, I remember in school, some some teacher thought they were going to really work with P.Q. Ribber and help him do his own comics. And they got me some of those ditto stencils that they used. And this was a total failure on every... The, the, one had to understand the limitations of a printing process in order to even do anything using uh, the ditto uh, without, you know, using pre-made stencils that compensated for that done by professionals. Oh, that was just such a mess. And it was, ugh. to this day, the idea of like printing my own stuff, part of my brain goes, oh no, that doesn't work. And that's it. Of course it works. We're in 2022. Uh, I can do this but I still, in the back of my head, go back to that and the early Xerox zines uh, that we did as kids in the 70s, where the pages visibly by day would get darker and darker because they were more like a fax than a modern uh, photocopy. Oh, it's just... 
<laughs> and yes, newspaper comics too were uh, certain artists, like a man named Stan Drake, if you read more about him, Alex Raymond. These were men who worked right on the edge of the limitations of the printing process of comics to bring you, uh, us, all of us, uh, a unique visual interpretation. I mean, the comic book art to certain creators like this was, and no kidding around in art. And he's talking about Mort Walker, who uh, I, him and Dick Brown, I believe, kind of worked together and teamed up at times. And yeah, there was just all that stuff in that same really cool style with a little variation. I mean, High and Lois, Beetle Bailey, Hagger the Horrible. These were all kind of done in the same studio amid the same people and their assistants. And it was, I, I loved High and Lois as a kid. Uh, I'm sure that's long gone. Is, is there such a thing as Wizard of Id? I remember that being real popular and fun. Um, maybe, uh, yeah, the Born Loser, I remember. he. We didn't get a daily one, but he was in our Sunday comics, the color supplement, and that that, that nebbish humor. But H.T. Webster, uh, in a completely different pen and ink style, kind of mined the same place, but nostalgia for, of course, an even older time in our history i mean that's the other thing about old comic strips uh you look at that old george herman crazy cat and if you can fall into that it's falling into an entirely other time space and universe in ink in pen and ink and yes, yeah, some of the colors stuff. I I would I was reading through Gasoline Alley, which I think is still running and telling a chronological story. And but the early ones by Frank King are just so well drawn. The stories are so well thought out and composed. Uh, these are people, or were people who lived that this was their life, like. Uh, Charles Schultz. And I suppose there are guys today who are doing that. And I'm just totally unaware because I'm, I don't look at a daily newspaper. I haven't in 20 years. So I have been taken out of that entire uh, conversation as many have i'm sure i mean it's, it's if i'm not mistaken most of the big popular newspapers they still print I mean, new york times doesn't have comics uh, usa today unless something changed never had comics so this is boy it, it, these could be the last days and maybe the last days have passed and it's just some sort of uh, lingering entity that it, it it persists even though it isn't it it does it's dead but it doesn't know it like a zombie presence in our popular culture oh boy that's a sad thing to ponder but back to chad but you as the housewife you're saying to yourself uh you know i, I made that cherry pie because my mom's coming tomorrow and uh, i want to you know play happy families and all that when she gets up here 
So I, I figure I'll have the kids dressed in their little Lord uh, Fauntleroy pants. I'll get the, the girls to uh, to learn a new song, and we can line them up over there on the stairway and have them sing Fo, Re, Rao, Sal, Do, Re, Mi. And then we'll get our uh, Nazi father to come home and let them all sit on his knee as he uh, tells them a story. But my mom's coming, and uh, I made this wonderful pie, and now Hagar's eating it, and it's horrible. So what I'm going to do, because I... Uh, I feel, I feel a, a kindred spirit to this comic strip. I, I feel like Hagar gets me. Finally, somebody gets me. I'm going to get the scissors, and I'm going to cut this comic out. And I'm going to uh, put it right at work. I'm going to tape it on the wall on my bulletin board, so I'll see it every time I look at it. And if I come across any other comic strips that... Uh, that speak to hidden levels of intrigue about my profession or about uh, problems that I've encountered, bummers, so to speak, in life. I'm going to cut that sucker out, and I'm going to post it right up here on the, uh, the old bulletin board. And when people come by, they can read my comics and thus understand me just a little better. Garfield. Everybody... Uh wants to talk about Garfield. It's everywhere, man. Jim Davis, 1978 to the present. This is a you know, this is a cartoon or comic that's not so old. It's you and I, people like us. You know, we can remember when it was born, when it started out, when it was a new comic. In a way, my reference of it as the comic was um, that it was you know interesting and funny and Garfield's a cat and uh, you know grumpy cats that's a likable character right there grumpy cats that want to eat a lot that's very relatable I think we all can feel like that so there's been a lot of licensing some people say that uh, that Garfield's secretly the darkest comic that ever existed uh, because as foretold in a 1989 week-long Halloween strip uh, you know Garfield woke up and he's in his old house it's just uh, you know been abandoned and so some people think that every episode or every instance of Garfield since that one uh, have been in kind of that uh, upside-down world, you know? Gorgons and all that mess. You ever read that, uh, you ever read that comic called Pluggers? 1993 to present. Now, Pluggers, it's basically about, like, Walmart people. You can think of, uh, you know, Pluggers just kind of stuck in their ways... Average Joe, you know, probably, uh, you know, probably, probably not exactly average. Probably on the other side of the bell curve, you know. Let's say average is in the middle, so they're going to be over on the left, you know. Um, these comics are designed to be magnetized to the fridge at your grandparents' house. Uh, 
Yeah. I've seen I've seen a few that were funny. The art style is, uh, you know, they call it pluggers. I, I feel like they all have really big noses. Uh, maybe that's why they call the the strip pluggers. You know. Mother Goose and Grim. Uh, now it's, uh, it's occasionally surrealistic and funny comic. Um, I think. What do you think? What do you think, Dolly? Well, this is the way we were. The way we were. Grim, move your chair back. It's too close to the TV. So he hops up. Cute little, little yellow dog character with a big round brown nose. He's pushing hard on the chair. He's using the TV to push against, trying to push the chair back. And that's comic one. Mother Goose and Grim. And this one, he's holding a fire extinguisher. I guess he's Grim. Who am I? What happened here? 92, 93, Grimm's counting, 95, 99, ready or not, here I come. He's coming down the stairs, he's sniffing under the rug. Ha, there you are. He found his fleas on his owner. His fleas were on uh, Mother Goose. He wasn't looking for a... Hey, okay, Mom, smile. But stop making that duck face look in your selfies. Oh, too much? It's, uh, it's like a duck. It's like a female duck, like Daisy Duck. Donald Duck, Lucy Duck. Who's the, uh, the female duck I'm talking about? Donald Duck, uh... Here's, here's Grim, and who's this other dog, man? Who's this other guy? What can I say? Chicks dig me. He's running through a farm, and all these uh, chickens are following him. Oh, dear. What's wrong? Alrighty, then. We are recording, sir. Let's get one more take. Mother Goose and Grim. His silhouette clicks a television from sitting in his chair. Let's see what's on the BBC this week. TV Guide. Let's see. The Nerdist on Saturday. Yes, says Mother Goose. Grim says, along with Doctor Who. Mother says, yes. Grim says, and then Top Gear. Says, uh huh. Grim says, so who comes on first? She says, no, who's on second? Grim grabs the TV guide. Then we start on top. She says, no, top runs last. Grim panics. Then who runs first? She says, no, Grim, see? And then Attila the cat's like, hey. There's an Abbott and Costello special on. 
another nice and clean comic. And I like the uh, I like the color on the uh, the background there. Mike Peters uses sometimes he does some gradients, does a lot of whole color fills in there, and uh, you know, it's a pleasant it's a pleasant look. Yeah, Dilbert, Dilbert, Peanuts, Calvin and Hobbes. You know, uh, Peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes, and uh, yeah, those are good comic strips. I I like the uh, the idea that Dilbert represents the uh, office culture of the 90s through uh, the 2000s. I think that uh, I think that it captures something there quite quite true and funny in a Mike Judge kind of a way. So I uh, I hope we'll all meet again soon, but uh, I'll I'll be here with my uh, Play-Doh, my silly putty. And uh, I'll see you in the funny pages. Garfield. Everybody uh, wants to talk about Garfield. It's everywhere, man. Jim Davis, 1978 to the present. This is a you know, this is a cartoon or comic that's not so old. It's you and I, people like us. You know, we can remember when it was born, when it started out when it was a new comic. In a way, my reference of it as a comic was um, that it was, you know, interesting and funny, and Garfield's a cat, and, uh, you know, grumpy cats, that's a likable character right there. Grumpy cats that want to eat a lot, that's very relatable. I think we all can feel like that, so there's been a lot of licensing some people say that uh, that Garfield's secretly the darkest comic that ever existed, uh, because, as foretold in a 1989 week-long Halloween strip, uh, you know Garfield woke up and he's in his old house. It's just uh, you know been abandoned, and so some people think that. Every episode or every instance of Garfield since that one uh, have been in kind of that uh, upside-down world, you know? Gorgons and all that mess. You ever read that, uh, you ever read that comic called Pluggers? 1993 to present. Now, Pluggers, it's basically about, like, Walmart people. You can think of, uh, you know, pluggers just kind of stuck in their ways. Average Joe, you know, probably, uh, you know, probably, probably not exactly average. Probably on the other side of the bell curve. You know, let's say average is in the middle, so they're going to be over on the left. You know, um, these comics are designed to be magnetized to the fridge at your grandparents' house. Uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen a few that were funny. The art style is, uh, you know, they call it pluggers. I, I feel like they all have really big noses. 
maybe that's why they call the, the strip pluggers. You know? Mother, Goose, and Grimm. Uh, now, it's, uh, it's occasionally surrealistic and funny comic. Um, I think. What do you think? What do you think, Dolly? Well, this is the way we were. The way we were. Grim, move your chair back. It's too close to the TV. So he hops up. Cute little yellow dog character with a big round brown nose. He's pushing hard on the chair. He's using the TV to push against, trying to push the chair back. And that's comic one. Mother Goose and Grim. And this one. He's holding a fire extinguisher. I guess he's grim. Who am I? What happened here? 92, 93, Grimm's counting. 95, 99, ready or not? Here I come. He's coming down the stairs. He's sniffing under the rug. Ha! There you are. He found his fleas on his owner. His fleas were on uh, Mother Goose. He wasn't looking for uh Hey, okay, Mom, smile. But stop making that duck face look in your selfies. Oh, too much? It's, uh, it's like a duck. It's like a female duck, like Daisy Duck. Donald Duck, Lucy Duck, who's the uh, the female duck I'm talking about? Donald Duck. Uh, here's here's Grim and who's this other dog, man? Who's this other guy? What can I say? Chicks dig me. He's running through a farm and all these uh, chickens are following him. Oh dear, what's wrong? Alrighty then. We are recording, sir. Let's get one more take. Mother Goose and Grim. His silhouette clicks a television from sitting in his chair. Let's see what's on the BBC this week. TV guy. Let's see. The Nerdist on Saturday. Yes, says Mother. Grim says, along with Doctor Who. Mother says, yes. Grim says, and then Top Gear. Mother Goose says, uh-huh. Grim says, so who comes on first? She says, no, who's on second? Grim grabs the TV guide. Then we start on top. She says, no, Top runs last. Grim panics. Then who runs first? She says, no, Grim, see? And then Attila the cat's like, hey, there's an Abbott and Costello special on. Another nice and clean comic. You know, I like the, uh, I like the color on the, uh, 
the background there Mike Peters uses. Sometimes he does some gradients, does a lot of whole color fills in there, and uh, you know it's a pleasant it's a pleasant look. Yeah, Dilbert, Dilbert, Peanuts, Calvin and Hobbes. You know, uh, Peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes and, uh, yeah, those are good comic strips. I, I like the, uh, the idea that Dilbert rep represents the uh, office culture of the 90s through uh, the 2000s. I think that, uh, I think that it captures something there quite quite true and funny in a Mike Judge kind of a way. So I, uh, I hope we'll all meet again soon, but uh, I'll, I'll be here with my uh, Play-Doh, my silly putty, and uh, I'll see you in the funny pages. Indeed, you are the Fiorella LaGuardia of the Onsug Shed. That was just... And, and for those of you who don't know, uh, there were newspaper shortages and strikes uh, back in the 30s and 40s uh, when Fiorella LaGuardia was the mayor of New York City. And of course, LaGuardia Airport is named after this beloved figure. And one of the reasons he was beloved is when the newspapers went on strike and the kids couldn't see their funnies, uh, the story goes he went on the radio and read the funnies to all the kids and I guess adults. I mean, uh, the comics were not necessarily exclusively for kids back then. But yeah, uh, a, a figure of historic grandeur and significance especially here in our own uh, hall of uh, people who should not ought to be forgotten for their popular culture contributions to our world because that's you know as much as anything what this big old onsug is all about uh, and very very fine shed and uh, yeah and again uh, due to uh, circumstances and whatnot we are now it's a Wednesday I, I, I feel so bad when I reach Wednesday and I'm still working on the central but it's a good central so hopefully this makes up for the uh, obvious tardiness although those listening in the future uh, when I whine like this, I'm sure it just sounds redundant and pointless because there's the show. What difference does it make whether it was a day late, ten years later? I, I think too much, or maybe I don't think enough. In any case, we have Frank Edward Nora here at the uh, ready with his contribution, and uh, let's see where Frank takes this. I remember some parodies of comic strips. Uh, for example, there was one of those... Um, in the 80s, one of those uh, anthology comics, I forget what it was, but they had a Peanuts parody called Nut Peas that I remember we were really into. It was so funny. It was sort of like the Charlie Brown character was there opening his mailbox. And and Lucy's like, what did you get in the mail, Charlie Brown? And he, he reaches in and brings out this glowing green thing. Yag, radioactive waste, something like that. I know it really, uh, there, there was a bunch of them. I remember there was one called For Worse. It was sort of a parody of For Better or For Worse because people thought the artwork was so bad. It's just For Worse. <laughs> you know?
But that's definitely you know, one of the aspects, pretty much one of the aspects of everything are the parodies of these things. But I think the newspaper comics really um, occupy a, a very special place in pop culture history that I think may be uh, kind of winding down at this point. Because I know they still make them, but it, it feels very empty these days. Um, I know I've talked a lot about being a kid in the 70s, and I'm sure it was very similar in the 60s and even somewhat into the 80s probably. But, you know, the idea that you're a kid and there's not a lot of entertainment for you, right? Now there's uh, narrow band entertainment for children, wh- whether it be cable TV channels or, of course, the ever-present tablets with the various apps and cartoons and what have you. You got to remember being a kid back in those days, right? You turned on the TV set before cable. You might have had seven channels over broadcast, maybe a couple on UHF, but please, that never worked properly. Anyway, of course, we tried. Um, you turn on the TV, and at many times of the day, there'd be no nothing for kids on, right? It, it was not like – it was like maybe sometimes in the afternoons there was kids programming after school, of course, Saturday morning. But – and then in terms of what you had in your house, there was no internet. There's no tablets, so there's – your books, your comic books, which you've read a million times, um, you could play some records, but in general, it was you were pretty challenged, and we did go outside and play a lot too, because there really, right, there, there was a good balance for us. We never had to be told to go outside and play, because even the electronics, when that came around, the Atari and stuff, those games, they weren't as all-encompassing as they are now. Yeah. So the newspaper comics were this relatively unique aspect, which was, you know, my parents subscribed to the newspaper. I think we probably got the Courier News from Somerville. Uh, you know, your, your local newspaper that you subscribe to usually has the comics section. So I would say that during the week, uh, pretty much we would get a, the newspaper delivered every day, daily newspaper, and uh, there would be a comic section. So as your parents are reading the um, the comics, you know, reading the newspaper, you could just sort of grab it and, and find the comic section, and that, that was a few minutes of entertainment right there. Though I feel like even at the time, it wasn't like, it, it was something we sort of approached with a bit of skepticism, like, it's nothing else to read, I guess I'll just read the comics, and occasionally it would be funny, but in general, a lot of those comics were just really not very funny or very good, but it was you just had to read them because it was the most stimulating thing that was sort of kids' entertainment you could find. But some of the comics were a little more adult-oriented, too. Like that friggin' Mary Worth. What the hell? That wasn't fun to read. I think one of the the, uh, the parodies was Mary Worthless. That would be really cool. I'm sure someone has it online, a, a catalog of parodies of newspaper comic strips. Mary Worthless. And there was a Mark Trail. Like, these, these were, like, much more realistic. Even, like, Prince Valiant, like... That was not really something that we looked forward to because it was just, you know, some sort of long, ongoing epic saga, you know. <coughs> anyway, um, of course, Peanuts was always good, always good. That's probably, you know, if you think talk about comics, newspaper comic strips, Peanuts, I think, rises to the sort top as probably the greatest of all time in, in a number of ways, right? Uh, and that's the case. So a lot of comic strips never really had a huge influence beyond the newspaper page. Of course, Peanuts did on TV specials, toys, and games. I mean, 
Snoopy and huge in Japan, right? And the Peanuts, they used to work for one of those insurance companies, I think. What was it, Prudential or something? They eventually got fired, though. But, I mean, that's an example, of, an extreme example of a comic strip that was just... I mean, Snoopy is is a, a character up there with Mickey Mouse and Sonic the Hedgehog. Super popular characters, you know. Because I think Sonic is the most recognizable video game character. But anyway. And comic strip characters did... Uh, find their way into video games. Of course, obviously Snoopy has a endless video games related to the Peanuts and Snoopy. But also, I remember BC's Quest for Tires. It was a, it was one of the rare games in the later days of the of the ColecoVision home video game system. BC's Quest for Tires. Remember Johnny Hart? He had two comics. He had BC about these cavemen. And he also had the Wizard of Id about this kingdom with a wizard and a king and all that stuff. Johnny Hart and. Uh, I think a lot of these comics, they continue on after the creator stops doing it or dies. But there's some comics like Peanuts where it was always just Charles Schultz. Charles Schultz, that's his name? Charles Schultz, I think. Right. Yeah. Anyway, um, but a lot of them bring in new creators and they just keep going forever. You know, it's like these zombie comic strips that just keep going and going and going. Um, But yeah, I mean... uh, so that's a sort of an outlier, like BC. Like, where would you see BC besides in the comic strips? Like, there's a video game. You know, there's some, like, uh, I guess Zippy the Pinhead is still still going. Bill Griffiths is sort of a, an underground comic, but it's a comic strip. What was the other one? Oh, Ziggy is another one, sort of in this. Well, Zippy and Ziggy, you know. <laughs> Ziggy, I think, had great success in the greeting card world. He's sort of a little deformed dwarf type of man. Who has funny has funny observations on the world, Ziggy, and it's true. A lot of comic strip characters can go beyond, but on the other side, like uh, Hallmark has some characters that were never in comic strips, like Maxine, the angry old woman. The, you know, who really I don't think is somehow I I got on some sort of Facebook group that has single panel comics of of Maxine. She's just this angry old woman with a dog, and she's very bitter towards life. I don't know if she'd qualify as a comic strip character. I don't know. But, um, you know, and I think I did see a comic. I, I did see a comics page on the ground. Maybe it was in Truth or Consequences in New Mexico. Um, they So basically, it's they're black and white all week long. But then there's the color section of that's much expanded. Usually it's just a page or two in the newspaper. But the color, the Sunday comics, it's a much larger thing. And then, of course... The, the grand scale of this, like uh, Little Nemo in Slumberland, just incredible artwork and color. And I had a bunch of them. I remember I was at a, a comic convention somewhere in Piscataway. Not Piscataway. Um, what's the other one that sounds like that? Parsippany. Okay, see, this is Jersey for you. There was a comic convention, and uh, someone was selling original newspaper pages of Little Nemo in Slumberland. This was when he moved... Windsor McKay moved to a different syndicate, so it was called In the Land of Wonderful Dreams because the other syndicate owned the title. So I bought about, it was about 10 of them, I think, and I had them in storage for years, and I finally framed them and put them on the wall of my bedroom in my last place, but now they're back in storage, still framed. They're the original pages. They aren't reproductions. I don't think they're worth all that much, but they're from like 1910, 1912, you know, so over 100 years ago now. Not 100 years when I bought them, but... Um, but, you know, this sort of points out one of these things. Unfortunately, the comics are kind of 
what's the right word for it? Uh, burdened with a character that, uh, of of the imp or impy, who was this uh, this uh, you know this African tribesman kid, who, uh, from today's perspective, looks looks rather unacceptable, you know. So my wife was even concerned. Like, do we have racist comics on the wall? I'm like, no, it's not racist. It's not meant. It, nothing is. It's not meant to be derogatory. But obviously, uh, it does kind of limit the capacity of Little Nemo from um, really being reintroduced. And they have uh, <clears throat> continued Little Nemo in a couple of ways. There were some cartoons. There was like a Japanese animated movie, and they take that character out in every single case. You know. Flip, by the way, is, is a guy who's green, but I guess green people are not really amongst the sensitivities of today. But, you know, so I think from a young age, I would be, I would have, I don't know, I obviously can't remember the, the first time I saw them, but I probably would have started looking at them before I could even read, um, as my parents were reading the newspaper and just showed me the comics probably. But there was a fateful day in, at a flea market, I believe it was in Englishtown, New Jersey, and I probably was somewhere around eight years old, and it was a used book. Um, it was outside. It was just outside, a table outside in the sun, you know, uh, used books. And there was this book. It was a hardcover book. The slipcase was gone. It was kind of a, that off-white, like, linen cover. But I think there was, there was an embossed uh, character of the Yellow Kid, who was the first comic strip character. And this was a book. I actually found the title. You know, I don't have this book anymore. I, I must have gotten rid of it at some point. But I found a ton of copies online. I'm 99.9% sure it was um, The Comics, An Illustrated History of Comic Strip Art by Jerry Robinson, originally, I believe, from 74. Or I don't know if that's the softcover edition. This was, but this was the hardcover edition, um, <coughs> again, without the slipcase. And some people are selling it without the, the slip dust jacket, whatever you call that thing. Uh, so I saw some online that looked exactly like the one I had. This was my window into the early history of the comics and stuff I really never knew about before. And then, of course, I think that those types of books were always available in libraries, like the county library, the school library, where you could learn about the earlier history of the comic strips. I've always been really kind of fascinated by that. It's more you came at that magic time and I came. That, that the age difference between us, that that little, we can explain the difference, or one of them right here. When I was the age where that interest struck me, like these comics, there's a history and the books like that, there were like a handful of books, and that's all there was. And libraries have them? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe some very liberal library, but a library spending money on a deluxe book on comic strips? It, that that was that this is a new innovation that happened in my own existence and what I mean now you when I lived in the Bay Area and in the early 2000s around 2000 that that one library in Berkeley had one of the most amazing graphic novel collections I have ever read my way through over the course of a few weeks uh, months however long I was there but it, it, it was a time, and uh, and 
it became important. Uh, the whole nostalgia thing that happened in the late 60s and early 70s fueled a lot of it. That brought back old radio and old movies. Uh, I think they were pretty much considered crap old people liked up until that point. The nostalgization of our culture when all of a sudden those records, those old race records became doo-wop gold and golden oldies. Now I, I loved back in the day the Sunday Daily News funnies. It, it was like huge. It was like 16, 24 pages, tabloid size, not super big like the ones that came with the local Times Herald record, which was what, double tab? I don't know these newspaper sizes, but it was convenient. And you had Dick Tracy, and you had, well, Dondi. When I was a kid, there was something... I don't know. Dondi was one of those. There were so many weird strips that were just there. And I have no idea whatsoever. Oh, it, it's the appeal. Who was reading Dondi about a World War II refugee kid and his adventures in America and getting separated from his family and, and getting involved in other people's drama? I don't know. I, I, apparently, it was a very popular strip. They even made a movie out of it that's considered, uh, or at least used to be considered one of the worst movies ever made now that's just not even considered i think david jansen was in it and some awful child actor but um god what are these other strips i mean eek and meek i, I had books with eek and meek and uh, a kid strip called tiger uh it's just the, the memories that come back in all of this, this is really... Uh, and, and then there was this TV show uh, when all the Archie cartoons became popular. One year they had something called Archie's TV Funnies. And of course, Archie himself appeared uh, in the Times-Herald Record, our daily paper locally out of Middletown, New York. The, the Archie had a daily strip, just you know, four panels and some goofy gag with Jughead or something. But yeah it was it was a world that is fading and fading fast and i had that big buck rogers book and that big jerry robinson book by the way jerry robinson uh is credited with co-creating the joker and being one of the creators of batman because bob kane of course took all the credit but bill finger and jerry robinson especially aside from other ghosts uh deserve um partial credit and some sort of honor for their work uh, on that character that batman and I'm pretty sure it's, yeah, Batman had a newspaper strip, although that went way back. And there may have been one during that TV camp 1960s Batman for a while, because they would do stuff like that back then. Now, I don't think they use promotional comic strips. I mean, even Star Wars had a promotional comic strip with art by Al Williamson, if I recall correctly. One of the great sci-fi uh 
comic artists and comic strip artists and 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 man yeah the comic strips let's get back to frank he, he he's he's going places and um that definitely was sort of a fateful moment getting that book and just being aware of it this this world to comic books uh, were originally just compilations of comic strips right like fun and new fun the, those early ones from the 30s but of course comic books sort of took off in their own trajectory right um, and I think the comic strips were um, very much I mean one of the things was there was a, a filter right there, there were these syndicates like the King Feature syndicates so it wasn't like every newspaper had their own comic strips. Everyone sort of shared the same. So it was this kind of very narrow band of characters, you know, Beetle Bailey and High and Lois and, and the Lockhorns and all. You know what I mean? Like you, you, every newspaper in the country would have kind of the same comics, which, which created this kind of commonality, right? You know. Then I would say, you know, so I think that starting in the 1890s, I think, is when it started. And in fact, that book against the day that um, uh, Anne from the uh, on, on Discord, she's been uh, and she's been telling us she's been reading against the day. I think on my recommendation. So Anne, I hope you're really enjoying the book. But it really does. It takes, starts off in the 1890s, and they do mention the, the Sunday comics and the characters. Um, the main characters are are on this airship called the Inconvenience, and it was based on a a short-lived Sunday comic. I forget what it was called about these characters on this airship. And in the book, the airship starts off very small, but it keeps getting larger and more elaborate as time goes on. Very much inspired by those comics of the of the of the late 19th century. Yeah, pause there to talk to my neighbor. I mentioned I was recording about newspaper comics. I asked her what her favorite one was, and she definitely said she said Peanuts, which I think obviously Peanuts is on a whole other level from any other comic strip, really. She also mentioned, I had kind of forgotten it, but the, when you had the silly putty and you would uh, flatten it out and uh, put it on top of one of the newspaper comics, it would lift the ink and you'd have a mirror image of the comics characters and you could sort of stretch them and stuff. So that was an early form of playing around in Photoshop, you know. She also mentioned like the New Yorker comics, which aren't really newspaper comics. Those are those are single panel comics that are on a very pompous, conceited level. But I suppose some of them are funny. It kind of reminds me of the uh, Charles Adams single single panel <coughs> comics. But I don't know if those were in newspapers. I think those were more in magazines because we used to have we had a few compilations of the Charles Adams, which obviously where the Adams family came from, but. His comics were not just focused on the Adams family. They had a, a broader spectrum of characters. Yeah, those aren't newspaper comics, but comics definitely sort of uh, <coughs> span a lot of different worlds. And it was a very visual... It was like cartoons before cartoons, right? It, it was something before other technologies. Comics were of all sorts, were much more important to stimulate the mind and the eye. Um, <clears throat> I, I, Because she asked me also, well, what's, what's the longest-running comic strip? And my guess was Gasoline Alley, uh, which 
of course. I never was really into that much, but that one, the characters actually age in real time. So, anyway, I brought up a list of the longest-running comics as of whenever this article's from. 2020. Okay, so that's pretty good. So here we go. The Cats and Jammer Kids started in 1897 and was canceled in 2006. Wow. (laughs) Wow, man. That's like 109 years. It's about these uh, two... uh, Two, ras- two German rascals that always get into trouble. And I remember my, in my, my grandparents, they had a room upstairs called the Green Room. because It was a green-themed room with green wallpaper and green sheets and stuff and the, the beds in there. And um, they had um, kind of a paperback compilation of Cats and Jammer Kids. I think my grandfather was a fan of the Cats and Jammer Kids. And he may have got, who knows, he grew up in Italy. as uh, Maybe he got that even in Italy, so he knew about the Cats and, Cats and Jammer Kids. Um, the next longest running is, of course, Gasoline Alley, 1918 to the present. It's still going. Gasoline Alley is still going. And then, of course, the next longest running, starting in 1919, still going, uh, Barney Google and Snuffy Smith. Of course, um, Snuffy Smith, who was a hillbilly. We talked about the hillbilly topic uh, a number of episodes ago here in the Central. Uh, kind of took over. But Barney Google comes back from time to time. In fact, I think... Maybe it was like 2015 or 2016, Barney Google uh, came to visit that town. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, as to whether or not Barney Google is the origin of, of the name of Google, right? The website Google is <laughs> more than a website. It's a, uh, it's a way of life now. Um, you know, there was that song, Barney Google with the goo-goo-googly eyes, which was definitely based on the comic strip. Then there was the word Google, G-O-O-G-O-L, which was, what was it, 10 to the 100th power or something like that. Um, A mathematician asked his grandson somewhere in the 1930s or something, what what would he call this very large number? And the kid says, Google! So whether or not it was originally based on Barney Google, like sort of goggly, googly, goggly eyes, you know. But Google is about looking at things, so. Anyway, that's a whole thing. Let's see what else. Little Orphan Annie ran from 1924 to 2010. That's a comic strip that obviously really transcended the comics into radio and movies and things. Popeye, of course, originally in Thimble Theater, and I think it was a number of years before Popeye actually Entered the comic strip Thimble Theater, but um, this officially went from 29 to 94. Popeye, of course, also transcended in TV shows, cartoons, and then movies as well. Well, at least that one movie by Robert Altman. <laughs> I got to see that one again. Blondie, 1930 to the present. Dick Tracy, 1931 to the present. Dick Tracy, I think. There was that one movie with Warren Beatty and Madonna. <laughs> uh, and at Disney World, they even had Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers. I, I, I think I played that on the other side recently. Prince Valiant, of course, 1937 to the present. It's still going, I guess. Did he? What? What is he on a quest or something? Did he ever get on the quest? Brenda Starr, reporter, 1940 to 2011. Beetle Bailey, of course, the military comic about a lazy soldier dude named Beetle Bailey, 1950 to the present. B.C., as I mentioned, uh, 1958 to present. And Dennis the Menace, which also was a TV show 
1951 to the present. I think there were some movies as well. So that's uh, some of the longest-running comic strips. There was there was that sort of uh, I think I mentioned it on uh, the serial episode a few episodes ago. There was that Morning Funnies uh, uh, serial, which which contained actual comic strips. It was from Ralston, and it had uh, included Marvin, Tiger, Dennis the Menace, The Family Circus, High and Lois, Beetle Bailey, and uh, Luann. And was this is this another one? What a guy is that one? I don't know. Luann, I don't know. I don't know how long Luann lasted, but anyway, this was from like '88 or '89. The Morning Funnies. So it was still something that it at least one serial company thought that the comics were relevant to kids at the time. I think they still were fairly relevant. I mean, most of these comics are, are sort of involve children, right? I mean, Marvin is a child. Whatever happened to Marvin? Tiger is another child with a baseball cap. Dennis the Menace, obviously. Family Circus. About about a family. I think this is very much parodied, and probably very mean spirited parodies. High and Lois again a family. Beetle Bailey obviously is is not a child. What a guy! What is that? What a guy! <laughs> is that actually a comic strip? And Luann, probably Luann. I don't know what what's up with Luann, but kind of probably kind of like Kathy, sort of a, a bitter single woman maybe. <laughs> Maybe Luann is uh, is Maxine in her younger days or something, anyway. And then there was that Saturday morning cartoon that I didn't see at the time, or I don't remember seeing, The Fabulous Funnies, but I, I do play it on the other side. It's a uh, the intro to The Fabulous Funnies, and they tried to convert a lot of these to uh, animation. I, I, I don't imagine it really caught on very well, but here it is, if I can play it for you here. Hold on to your seats, kids. Here we go. The Fabulous Funnies. Like a brand new day, we're here again, spreading sunshine to everyone. We've rounded up all our friends for you. I'm Ellie Oop. What a joke or two. Fabulous Funnies. Ellie Oop. Abracadabra. Alakazam. <laughs> Broomhilda can make you smile. I know I can. Hi, I'm Nancy. And hi, I'm Sluggo. And there's lots of fun wherever we go. Fabulous Funnies. I'm the captain, and funny adventures are on their way. They're handsome Fritz, and we're here to say that we're all going the to learn about an important lesson today on how to work and how to play. Fabulous Funnies. So shift right back and put on your smiles. It's a beautiful day. Come on and stay a while. Fabulous Funnies. Let's have a good time. What do you say? I guess they also call them the funny pages, right? But in order for me to gather up all our stars for... Yeah. Um, Let me see if I can find the the Fabulous Funnies, all of what, all the comic strips, because they they showed more than they actually introduced in there. So yeah, the Cats and Jammer Kids were there. Uh, Let me see. Broomhilda, Alley Oop, Captain and the Kids, which I guess was the Cats and Jammer Kids. They renamed it Captain and the Kids, which sounds a little bit like Cats and Jammer Kids. Nancy and Sluggo. That right. There's a lot of uh, the art style in Nancy was very unique, and people very bunch praise it these days. Um, what was that guy? What was that? Uh, the, the smartest kid in, in the universe that remember that guy who did all those really elaborate comic books and it was kind of like a reference on comic strips it was, it was referencing comic strips 
Chris Ware was that the guy's name? Yeah, Emmy Lou and Tumbleweeds. Wow. <clears throat> it was noted by critics that the show's comic potential was blunted by NBC's demand that the show promote pro-social messages for the child audience. This was especially noticeable when rowdy characters like the Cantajammer kids were obliged to spread messages of politeness and restraint. The Los Angeles Times called the show's moralizing heavy-handed. Jeez. Let's see. Then there was the Fantastic Funnies that included Garfield. Maybe that was before the Garfield cartoon. Garfield is another one that's um, very popular, obviously, yeah. Um, yeah, but anyway, I found here on the Internet Archive um, this uh, publication that looked like it was sort of just, you know, like maybe a 12-page uh, in newsprint. The Cavalcade of American Comics, and this is on the Internet Archive, new revised edition. Newspaper Comics Diamond Jubilee, Central Park Mall, September 12, 1971, presented by the Comics Council and the New York News. <laughs> the New York News, was that like a newspaper? Anyway, so they had this, they must have had this festival in Central Park. Um, and they must have handed this out, I guess. <coughs> um, but this is very cool because it's like a history of the comics. So we can I want to just read the early the early history because here's the at the beginning they have the yellow kid who was kind of an Alfred E. Newman type of like idiot child character, kind of like because I know I was talking about Simple Simon um on my show the other day, who's not a comic strip character, but a nursery rhyme character. But um Anne uh she posted a Pogo comics about that were sort of referencing Simple Simon. Pogo is another one the, uh, that was popular briefly. I wouldn't say briefly, but it's no longer popular. But Pogo, the, was he a muskrat or a, a possum? But he ran for president, I think, in 68, maybe. Um, a lot of these comics just sort of came and went in popular imagination. But, yeah, the yellow kid is an idiot child, kind of like Simple Simon. And he wears this long... He's wearing, like, I guess a dress, but... Like, little boys used to wear dresses at one point, right? And he's holding a phonograph. And his... This is before word balloons when the yellow kid... What he was saying was, like, written down on his yellow dress. Uh, Listen to the voids of wisdom, what the phonograph will give you. <coughs> and they show Buster Brown. This this little... Very fancy... Fan, a little fancy lad and his dog who eventually became the stars of a shoe store, somehow. Happy Hooligan, Alphonse and Gaston, that's gone. And then Crazy Cat, which I, we were, when, when I was in Truth or Consequences, we were talking about Crazy Cat with this guy, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Anyway, <laughs> how soon we forget. <coughs> that was a really cool conversation. Um, we're talking about Coconino County in Arizona where Cra Crazy Cat was based. Crazy Cat was really a good one. That was one that I was really interested in. Then you had, there's the Catch and Jammer Kids, L. Cinders, which I started reading a little bit of L. Cinders because um, there are websites where you can read the old comics for free, obviously. They're public domain. Tilly the Toiler and Andy Gump. But let me just read the beginning of this. Here is a, a phrase from Conrad Aiken, Pulitzer Prize poet and novelist from October 1969. 
<coughs> I'm not I'm not familiar with Conrad Aiken. I wonder if he's related to Clay Aiken from American Idol and uh, Celebrity Apprentice. Probably not. <coughs> Here's his quote. <coughs> I get fun out of the comics. Indeed, they're so real to me that I actually find myself dreaming about them and becoming part of their tapestry. I have always I have always since the yellow kid in my childhood and crazy cat at college been an addict and a great believer in the comic strips both comics and non-comics as being of tremendous importance as a social force this cannot be underestimated the comics reach people who are in other ways inaccessible and it's extraordinary how the comic artists are to seize on social wrongs and weaknesses and expose them in a way that really gets home to the people who need to be got home to. Marvelous and done in such unerring skill, done with such unerring skill. As for me, I read a great many. I take three papers a day to get my belly, to get my belly full. Interesting. Of course, in the 80s, we'll get to this history in a moment, but in the 80s, I think that You'd have to list as one of the best comics ever, Calvin and Hobbes, about this young lad, kind of, kind of a little rascal, kind of in the vein of the Cats and Jammer Kids, perhaps, and it, and his toy tiger, who he imagines being an actual living anthropomorphic tiger, and his parents, was just a watershed moment, if I may use that term, in the comic strips because this was so good, and the guy stopped it when he felt it was time to stop it, and it's everyone has always been kind of dumbfounded how this guy could stop doing what was a be- such a beloved comic strip. And he's sort of just retired now on his Calvin and Hobbes money somewhere in New England, and he, he does watercolors. It's just enraging to think about this guy doing watercolors when he could still be doing Calvin and Hobbes. But Anyway, <laughs> and then, of course, there's um, The Far Side by Gary Larson, and I think he started bringing it back. This was a guy, they were all single panel comics, but again, it was super innovative and just really clever ideas. And it was really, so that one, and then also I would say Bloom County. Bloom County, um, perhaps to a lesser degree, but it was it was good, but it was more brainy political humor. Kind of in the vein of Doonesbury, which always was kind of a drag when you're a kid trying to read Doonesbury, because it was adult, uh, again, adult-oriented political humor. But at least Bloom County had uh, Opus the Penguin as the, and Bill the Cat as sort of cartoonish characters. And he did, uh, what's his name, Burke, Berkeley Brethed, Brethed, whatever his name is. He did bring it back around 2015 because I remember that was, the, that was around the time I was out of work and I got my new job. And I was, remember reading the, the news that Burke Brethed was bringing back Bloom County. I know when someone does something like that, I know as an artist you always want to expand out from this one thing. But, you know... Just to have one thing is amazing as as any kind of artist. So let's check out the history here from 1971. Children are heroes of first comics. From scratches on cave walls to pop art, man has used drawings to convey his ideas. It was not until the turn of the century, however, that the artist reached the most extensive of all audiences, the comic strip reader. So that first quote, and this one, I guess a lot of people who generally weren't big readers would read the comic strips. Drawings and cartoons were frequent in American newspapers even before the Civil War. 
But newspaper comics as we know them today trace their start to 1896 when an experiment in using yellow color on a press turned an otherwise unimportant figure into a comic favorite. In those days, artist Richard Outcult, Oko, I don't know how to pronounce that, Outcult, Outco, Oko, that's a tough one, was uh, bur burlesquing current events in a series of drawings he called Down in Hogan's Alley. One of the regular characters wore a long white nightshirt. This area, it was decided, would make a good spot to test the use of yellow color. Thus, the yellow kid was born and named. The public took an immediate fancy to him, and the cartoon was in the paper to stay. Yeah, the yellow kid actually, I think, was brought back. I remember, did, did I read this on the show? I know, like, I think DC Comics or Marvel Comics, like, in a couple issues, like, the yellow kid was, like, existed in some alternate universe as, as like a weird superhero. Let me look that up, actually. Let's see. Other versions of the Yellow Kid. Entertainment entrepreneur Gus Hill staged vaudeville plays based on the comic strip. His version of McFadden's Flats was made into films in 1927 and 1935. The Yellow Kid made an appearance in the Marvel Universe in the Joss, Joss Whedon run written Joss Whedon written Runaways jeez it's a tongue twister story volume 2 issue 27 in this take on the character he exhibits superhuman powers in the Ziggy of February 16th 1990 Ziggy points to a smiling old man seated next to him on a park bench and says no kidding you were the yellow kid so yeah yeah the, the, so the Runaways I guess superhero team they they met the yellow kid in some dimension or something yeah here we let's continue with the, the article here on that attention getting nightshirt out called broke another tradition until then comic pictures were merely still lifes with perhaps a caption or two joke printed underneath out called brought words into the picture for the first time by writing messages on the nightshirt there you go so the next page here has more comic strips, uh, Bringing Up Father. I was reading a few of those, too. I'll give you the name of the site in a minute that I found those on. Interestingly, there's a character called Boob McNutt because out in Truth or Consequences, the caretaker of the space castle was Bob Mc, Bob McNutt, M-C-N-U-T-T. -T. <laughs> and this character's Boob McNutt. <laughs> maybe, maybe the actual character came into the real world and, yeah. Do you think the sorcerers could do that? Could they bring comic strips to life to work for them? They're sorcerers. They could do it. Here's Skippy. It looks like an angry young kid. A.B. the agent. I remember that one. I think I saw that one in that book I had. Regular fellers, two young kids. I don't know that one. Toots and Casper. Looks like an early version of uh, Blondie and Dagwood. Barney Google there, of course. And Polly and her pals. Let's see what they have to say here. <clears throat> from 1896, the Yellow Kid rode a crest of popularity for a year or two, but people gradually began to react against the little boy sitting on the curbstone with a hangover and other disturbing slum customs. By then, however, Outcold had created Buster Brown. Oh, he created Buster Brown as well. Wow. <clears throat> the first comic strip character had to have his clothes and haircut copied by thousands. <clears throat> Buster was much more respectable than the Yellow Kid. 
although he regularly ended up with the well-whacked rear because of his never-ending pranks. Coming along a couple years after the proven success of Buster Brown, the Cats and Jammer Kids were an overnight hit. Actually, they were not entirely original creations. When William Randolph Hearst was a young man, you know, the guy that Citizen Kane was based on, he brought back from Germany a collection of the Wilhelm Busch illustrations for the story of Max and Moritz. When comics proved to be a great circul proved to be great circulation builders, it was suggested that Rudolf Dirks, a young staff artist, work up a strip based on these characters. The result were Hans and Fritz, a pair of devils who could get into more trouble in the course of a week's sequences than most children in a lifetime. At first, the strips were without dialogue. Gradually, however, Dirks added balloons and make-believe German dialect. Soon, at the insistence of pleased readers, conversation became standard, a first in cartooning. Dirks, like Outcult, used, used the same cast of characters in all his strips and was the first to arrange his work consistently in panel sequences. So this, I guess, Cast and Jammer Kids was the first of that traditional style. <clears throat> the Family Enters Comics The comics began to capture the attention of adult readers, which inevitably changed the character of the strips. Family situation comedy became popular in the halcyon days before World War I. George McManus's <coughs> Bringing Up Father was the first and reflected the country's interest in the great wave of immigrants who had become sudden, suddenly and embarrassingly prosperous. The wives anxious to climb the social ladder as the menfolk clinging to their old ways. Jigs, corned beef, and cabbage became a national symbol. Let me go to the next page here. Wait. <clears throat> a national symbol of the uncomfortable male's revolt. The strip was so basically appealing that eventually it was syndicated internationally with corned beef replaced by tortillas in Mexico and by <coughs> choucroute garni in France. I don't know if that is. So let's see on this page, who do we have? We have Blondie, Gasoline Alley, Smatter Pop. <laughs> I don't know that one. And there's Little Nemo, of course. Other ethnic humor strips included Henry Hirschfield's Jewish A.B. the Agent and Frederick Burr Opper's French Alphonse and Gaston. Lank Leonard's popular policeman Mickey Finn and his uncle Phil have survived the swing, the swing away from ethnic humor and reflect their Irish-American background without offense to their real-life counterparts. Well, it was a lot harder to offend people in, in 70 or 71 than now. It was Captain Joseph Metal Patterson, founder of the New York News, who conceived the idea for the Gumps, physically perhaps one of America's least attractive families. With Andy's chinlessness and Min's plainness, he assigned the strip to Sidney Smith, who had been doing Old Doc Yak. The personalities of the Gumps struck a sympathetic chord in the American public, with husbands who were poor but proud with wives who felt fiercely protective towards their families. It won Smith the first million-dollar contract ever awarded a cartoonist, a million dollars over ten years. $100,000 a year back then, that's a lot of money. 
Another favorite of that period was The Bungle Family by Harry Tuthill. Wow, that word Tuthill again. My grandparents lived, uh, Tuthill Road was next to their house. Its hero, George, engaged in constant battle with the female members of his family, largely due to bungling attempts to please everyone. Again, this hit a nerve, and the strip enjoyed public favor for 20 years. <coughs> and here we go, a fall guy appears, the fall guy appears. A stock character in daily life is the fall guy. He came into his own early in comics history, uh, in comic history. Mutt and Jeff is the classic example. Bud Fisher, the creator, was first a sports cartoonist who later switched to the humor strip. Originally, Mutt was a horse player, always looking for the, uh, the quick kill, always broke and trying to get up the money for a parlay. Then he met the bumbling Jeff, whose troubles were caused mostly by females. Their combined difficulties have produced seven laughs a week since 1907. Al Smith, who had been working on the strip since 1932, took over Mutt and Jeff when Fisher died in 1954 and has been carrying it on ever since. Frederick Opper was another great champion of the underdog. His Happy Hooligan... <coughs> PQ, I think you've used Happy Hooligan in artwork and stuff, right? Was the eternal scapegoat. Happy didn't deliberately get in, into trouble. Trouble followed him. He was chased and beaten and thrown into jail all by mistake. Every man could read the record of his own defeats in Happy's woebegone face. Opera was prolific and soon started, and her name was Maud. Wow, I wonder if that was the inspiration of, of Maud, the All in the Family spinoff. The, the, chronic, the Chronicle of a Mule who in, endured the burdens and demands made by, uh, upon her by civilization. I guess Maud was a mule. But always triumphed in the end when man was stupid enough to turn his back. So. <coughs> Let's continue here. This is, a, this is a good article, right? This tells the whole history of comics. Subject matter becomes diversified. New forms, new ways of expressing universal longings began quite early in newspaper comics. Crazy Cat, the first strip to be acknowledged as art by the intellectuals, was destined to be the forerunner of a school of comic strips whose aim was social criticism or comment. For almost 35 years, Ignat's mouse heaved a brick at Crazy Cat to, to, the, the, to the delight of George Harriman's followers. He drew infinite variations on the central theme involving Office of Pup, the moralist, Ignatz, the outlaw, and Crazy Cat, who represented the principle of pure love. Little Nemo was another offbeat pace-setter. Windsor McKay portrayed the dream world of children, conceived in poetic form. It was a world of wild adventures that he set down in magazine illustration style. No attempt was made at satire or comedy. It was, an act it was action in its simplest form, set against backgrounds of opulent Splendor, yeah, I mean, that was an amazing one. Hairbreath Harry, the first of the superhero comics, carried the adventure theme a bit further, and this strip, created by Charles W. Cales, introduced the element of suspense to hold readers from day to day. Cales also created the first continued comic feature about a policeman, Clarence the Cop, and some dozen other humor and adventure strips over a 10-year period in the early 1900s. Let's see what characters are on this page. Hall Room Boys. No, I don't recognize that. 
Barney Google and Sparkplug. Yeah, his, his horse Sparkplug. There's Hairbreath Harry. Buck Rogers, of course, and, and the Catch and Jammer kids. The transition years. No, sorry. Girls come on the scene. Never far behind the times. The girls entered the comics to stay shortly before World War I. Back in 1912, Cliff Sterrett started his Polly and Her Pals. Polly represented the new generation of women, emancipated, often criticized, but holding their own against the older generation and its stifling ideas. Sterrett used the strip not only to celebrate the new women, but to lampoon the fads of the time, to prick the bubbles of pretension. He is often credited with aiding substantially in fighting the censorship which made so many cartoons an unrealistic, an unrealistic picture of the current state of affairs. Polly prepared the way for the next generation of independent-minded girls, whose toils, troubles, and romances found popular expression in the comics. Toots and Casper was a family strip in which G Jimmy Murphy introduced the idea of the attractive wife and the well-meaning but bumbling husband whose greatest claim to attention was the inexplicable love that a beautiful woman gave him. Fiction or not, Casper was the current stereotype of the ordinary husband, bringing home the bacon, getting into trouble because of his wife, keeping his nose to the grindstone. And here we go, the transition years. <laughs> I like how the headlights are typeset in a, in a, a Clarendon or Clarendon uh, condensed. It's a great font. <clears throat> it was Rube Goldberg who first took the literal and twisted into hilarity. While other people were shouting, get a horse, at the frequently stalled cars early in the century, Goldberg created one of his fantastic inventions involving a spare horse on top of a car, which was one way of reducing the common sayings of the day and to the ludicrous. Like many other cartoonists, Goldberg had started in the sports columns, he edged into the funnies with Boob McNutt. Oh, Boob McNutt was Rube Goldberg. Wow. Yeah, I remember we used to go to the Society of Illustrators when I worked at that financial marketing agency because the, the, the owner was a member, and they had some original uh, drawings by Rube Goldberg in, in the, the display case. <clears throat> Boob McNutt, a cartoon that soon had newspapers anxiously bidding for it. Goldberg's financial reward matched that of the top cartoonist of the hour, Bud Fisher. Cartooning had not only arrived as a countrywide means of expression through syndication in hundreds of newspapers, it also offered a glittering jackpot to artists. The newfangled automobile was the inspiration for Gasoline Alley, an altogether different type of comic strip. Frank King originally did illustrations for features and front-page cartoons, he was immersed in the news in, in on the latest fads. A small square he called the rectangle was his way of commenting on current events and the idiosyncrasies of mankind. What caught the public fancy was an occasional panel devoted to the trials and tribulations of the new automobile owner. Gasoline Alley might have withered away, but King peopled his feature with new characters of the type who might be living next door and sharing the everyday life of the reader. Skeezix entered the comic scene when he was left as a foundling on Walt Wallet's doorstep. He grew up on the funny pages through school, army, marriage, and fatherhood. Other members of this car cartoon family grew older, too. 
adapting to the changing patterns of American life. Since King's death, the strip has been continued by his longtime associates, Richard Moores and William Perry. This really is a great, a great article. I don't know if I can read the whole thing here, but <clears throat> you can find it on the Internet Archive. Uh, what is it called again? It's called Cavalcade of American Comics. Yeah, Let me just read a little bit more. <clears throat> Trying to see here. Hold on a second. Harold Gray's Little Orphan Annie was another <clears throat> early comer, which has lasted through the years. Annie goes her way through gang wars and murder plots, but always emerges victorious. She embodies Gray's philosophy that virtue and nobility of spirit always triumph. When Gray died, Tex Blaisdell took over the drawing of the strip, preserving the red dress and blank-eyed stare of the original Annie for yet another generation of loyal fans. And, of course, Gene Shepard in A Christmas Story talked about the uh, Little Orphan Annie decoder ring, you know, the Trinkmore Ovaltine thing. So this page we have Barney Google and Snuffy Smith, Mutt and Jeff, Bringing Up Father, Popeye, Gasoline Alley, Winnie Winkle, Our Boarding House, and Smitty. So, yeah, you should uh, yeah check it out. This is uh, really great. I'll give you the exact name here. Yeah, Cavalcade of American Comics. And this is, this is um, you can read it freely. You don't have to borrow it from the lending library or anything. That was interesting, the, the origins of the comics. And uh, <clears throat> let's see what else I have here. <coughs> yeah, the site comicbookplus.com. This is one of a number of um, <clears throat> sites that, that you, where you can read mostly comic books, but they have public domain comic strips. And uh, <laughs> this is where I was reading a lot. There's a ton of them in here. So this is probably like the best resource for reading comic strips. This is where I sell Elle Cinders. They have a lot of her stuff in there. Ton of, of public domain comic strips here. You can read comicbookplus.com. What about the current state of comics? They're still going. There's one recent one that I remember talking about on my show a few years ago from Argentina called Macanudo. And uh, there's an English translation of it. And this is a comic strip which has several several different characters. There's a penguin character. There's a witch. There's a, there's a girl and a little doll or something. I, I was reading some recent ones. It's... They really weren't that great, but of anything currently, that seems to be one that's a bit more, you know, like it's a new one and it has its own vibe and it's its own, it's its own thing. But I found two sites that <coughs> I think represent the current comics that you can read online free and then you have to pay if you, to read older ones. But ComicsKingdom.com, I don't know if this is the King Feature Syndicate one. Um, presents a lot of daily comic strips that are that are current. So let's see. Yeah, Macanudo. Here, here's today's Macanudo. Let's see. By Linears. Linears. No, it's a little girl and a cat. She's holding a balloon. Fly free, fly high, and soar, my friend. She lets go of the balloon. 
but the balloon gets stuck in a tree and the cat says, this is a very depressing life lesson. Yeah, I guess Macanudo is one of the more notable current comics as it's obviously a time period where the comic strip is is not as uh, popular as it once was, obviously. Let's just see what they have. They have Curtis... I think it's about a black family. Ray the Doe. Daddy Days. Carpe Diem. Take It from the Tinkersons. Zits. I've heard of that one. Zippy the Pinhead. Todd the Dinosaur. Tina's. Oh, Tiger is still going. Tina's Groove. Slylock Fox and Comics for Kids. Shoe is still going, I guess. About a, uh, a bird newspaper reporter. Let's see today's Shoe. Oh, this is the Sunday comic of Shoe. Stunning nose, a stunning nose with an ex, with exquisite balance. Thank you. It's a drunk guy trying to balance himself. Yeah, Sally Forth. Wow, it's still going. Rhymes with orange. Rex Morgan, M.D. Prince Valiant, Popeye. So these are all still going. Comicskingdom.com, and then there is GoComics.com. Um, let's go to GoComics.com. Let's see. This one, they have classic comics and they have political cartoons. Let's see. Classic comics. I thought this was kind of interesting because I know that they're reprinting a lot of them. Like, I know the Peanuts are still in newspapers, but it's just reprints. The Academia Waltz, Alley Oop, <laughs> updated today. Let's see what today's Alley Oop comic is. This is today, uh, Sunday, June 5th, 2022. Little Oop. It's about Alley Oop as a child. Okay, this looks annoying. Uh, Annie, BC, back to BC. I guess those are old ones. Broomhilda, Calvin and Hobbes, Kathy classics. I think Kathy ended just a few years ago. Dilbert, of course. Uh, Dilbert's one that I didn't mention. That's one that has some degree of, you know, beyond uh, the comic strips. People tend to, like, post Dilbert comics. It's sort of about uh, making fun of the business, the office scene, you know. Foxtrot, Garfield. What was the one I saw that looked kind of cool? Um, oh, Luann again. I guess Luann came back. There was I saw one. The, what was the one I saw called I-Beam? Skippy. Oh, wow. Is that, is that the same Skippy? Yeah. What was the one I-Beam I saw? I don't see it anymore. I guess it was a short-lived comic strip, but I'm trying to see... Hmm. Where did I see I-Beam? What the hell? Oh, I-Beam Classic. Yeah, by Sam Hurt. Classic comics. With, uh... I guess they're just re- they're reprinting them. I never heard of I-Beam. E-Y-E-B-E-A-M. It's kind of surreal comics. See, I never heard of I-Beam before. I, let me find the article on I-Beam because I read it a little bit earlier. <clears throat> I-Beam Comics. So you learn something new every day. I-Beam Com... No, 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 no. Sorry. Comics. Is this sort of like... Is that sort of a take on, like, characters that can shoot beams out of their eyes, like Cyclops from the X-Men and stuff? I don't know. Uh, I-Beam was a daily comic strip Written and illustrated by Sam Hurt in the University of Texas at Austin. 
Unlike most college strips, its popularity led to a print life past Hertz gra graduation. Interesting. The strip ran in the college's Daily Texan from 1980 to 1990, though examples from 78 through 79 exist. In 1983, Austin's daily paper, The American Statesman, picked up the strip. Other newspapers around the U.S. followed suit, although iBeam's family of subscribers was never greater than a few dozen. Yeah, I never saw it. In 1982, iBeam's popularity was such that a monster character called Hank the Hallucination ran for the University of Texas student government presidency. Campaign slogan, Get Real, and won. A figment of iBeam's imagination, even within the boundaries of the comic, Hank received more votes than two human candidates combined. After it was ruled that imaginary characters could not serve in the post, future Democratic advisor and CNN political co contributor Paul Begala was the campus's second choice. Following his loss, Begala wrote a tongue-in-cheek complaint for the Texan, arguing, I cannot help but feel Hank's platform is illusory at best. Must say that the candidate himself lacks substance. The strip developed a devoted fan base to support a steady series of paperback collections as well as ancillary merchandise such as t-shirts. Why well, have they never heard of this? Did anyone else ever hear of iBeam? Like, let me see how many... Like, what can you buy on Amazon about iBeam by Sam Hill? This feels like one of those peps, like uh, a past editing paranoia. Like, I never heard of iBeam. Hold on. iBeam Comics. Is this really a thing? I never heard of it before today. Hmm. I-Beam, Teetering on the Brink by Sam Hurt. Okay, so there's a lot of them. Okay. Yeah, PQ, did you ever hear of I-Beam? This is the sixth I-Beam trade paperback. Wow, interesting. Anyways, what a, what a rich topic. The I feel like I just sort of scratched the surface of the topic. Um, but yeah, it feels like I don't know if it will ever really go away, but it kind of feels like the age of the comic strip, newspaper comic strip, is over at this point, Macanudo notwithstanding. Um, it certainly is nowhere near as relevant as it used to be, um, but it obviously has, an, has had a huge impact on our society and culture. And I think when we talk about, you know, the pop culture of the 20th century that we're all so uh, fascinated by and so much enjoy. Um, yeah, that sort of 1890s time period feels like when that sort of stuff started in a, in a lot of ways with the comic strips. So, <clears throat> of course, I can't finish up here without mentioning my own comic strip, Zope, Z-O-P-E, my character is Zope which I drew a lot of comics of. I felt I needed my own comic strip. And uh, Zope's goal was to be more popular than Snoopy, and he's very angry at me for giving up on him and stopping doing the comic strips. But at some point, I will collect all my Zope comics. and Because uh, there's a bunch of them you can find online. But I should actually collect... Maybe I should make a book of Zope. Um, I actually did a, a, a show art of Zope right 
Yeah, yeah. Hold on. Let me let me find that. Let me just. I'll find that real quick here. Because it was Zope and a parody of Zope called Fnud that met finally in this uh, single panel cartoon of the Overnightscape. Hold on one second here. And I remember drawing it and uh, really just get, getting back into it. But I think as anyone that's drawn comics can tell you, it's. And yeah, here it is. Fnud and Zope's Pond Fuse. Yeah. It, 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 it is really awfully, um, the kind of energy it takes to draw comics is a different quality of energy than you'd need like to do a show. Like for me, recording this segment, for example, somehow drawing comics is just so much more intense and so much more insane. Oh, sorry, this page is loading in a weird way. Ah! Come on a second. But I guess, yeah, this was um, over a year ago on April 2nd. 2021, I drew Fnud and Zope's Pond Fuse. And that's the first time I actually drew uh, Fnud, who was, uh, <laughs> I made, in, in Severe Repair, I created a character named Kama, who was a parody of me. And he had a comic strip, which is a parody of Zope called Fnud, who was a musket ball that was fired in the Revolutionary War, but then went through this dimensional portal and is just continuing to fly by all these different scenes it was never particular. I never particularly did much more with it, but I actually created the look of Fnud with his sort of this like long eyebrow and his tongue sticking out and moving. And Pond Fuse is, um, you know, just an anagram of Fnud Zope, Pond Fuse. And um, <clears throat> so it was uh, these two ponds with lily pads um, and this bomb with a fuse, right, being lit by Zope with a Zippo lighter. And he has, it even looks like the Zippo lighter. It says he likes wearing T-shirts of himself, and probably the Zippo lighter is also a, um, a Zope Zippo lighter. But the two ponds, once the, once the bomb goes off, so you're lighting the fuse, but then the two ponds will be, become one. They'll be fused together. It'll be a pond fuse. And the Zope there is, uh, he's wearing a T-shirt of, of uh, his, his, when he, he died at one point. And he was dead Zope, like a ghost version of Zope. So he's wearing a dead Zope t-shirt. You know, I feel like in, an, in another timeline, I could have done more with Zope. And I think it's a, he's a very unique character. And, um, but I don't think I, it wasn't, I don't have a really that drawing ability, even though I was able to draw this kind of unique looking character. I know most people didn't like him. And I actually won worst mini comic of the year in 1986 for my Zope comics. Um, so someone's comment was that the the artwork hurts my eyes <laughs> yes anyway that's my comic strip zope and uh yeah i feel bad never really doing much more with zope but you know listen what do you want i just wasn't destined to be a comic strip ar- artist okay thank you it's a few thoughts on comic strips back to you pq now i myself I'm happy to have uh, wound up in the reality tunnel where, uh, well, we have examples of Zope, but uh, Frank opted for the Onsug. And yes, there is something about drawing comics uh, and cartooning. I've done my share. 
as it's it's just so involving as opposed to this this lighter uh, yeah i'm just i'm just driveling along here i'm not I'm hunched over a piece and my back hurts and my eyes little details so everything looks just right oh no no we're throwing all caution to the wind on the overnight scape underground instead breezing along with the breeze and um and um codifying other people's work which is uh and and by the way, I beam. I think I have seen. Uh, I, I have this very a recollection of it. One of the trade paperbacks going through the bookstore, and it, yeah, it had all this stuff like that. I was supposed to know what it is, and I flipped through, and it's the same thing. Like when you read that comic strip to us. The modern comic strip has not enough complexity to draw my interest whatsoever. It is like the, the humor are jokes, variants on those same jokes that were tired in 1975, rolled out again, which is fine because just because I've heard though, that there are people, and especially young, that, that this is new and they might, and a chuckle is a good thing. And, and, and that the form itself, even though it's so tiny anymore, does still have some sort of appeal. Uh, it's more of a graphic thing. Although you got guys like the guy who does Zippy, he draws a comic strip every day and the detail and the pen and ink work uh, I do take my hat off to Bill Griffith, and I've read tons and tons of Zippy. I used to buy the annuals every year, but I'm a little ways behind. i got to catch up on Zippy because uh, it's a certain type of absurdism, and uh, it goes a long way, but I may have burned myself out at a certain point. That happened with Bloom County and me. Uh, at a certain point, I just, I, and to this day, uh, it just, and I was really into it. I thought it was a really good concept, and I was reading all the trade paperbacks. And yeah, you ever have a thing? And and uh, Chris Ware's Acme Novelty Library, while not a comic strip, pays an incredible amount of homage to a lot of uh, early and innovative uh, comic strip stuff. And, uh, yeah, uh, oh, I just wanted to mention the Dennis the Menace TV show. That was so cool when I was a kid with that uh, Jay North. Whatever happened to Jay North? He was, uh, he was, uh, he was also on another show. He was like some sort of jungle kid, but, uh. He was Dennis the Menace for years, and that was just such a great adaptation with good old Mr. Wilson, both of them, because two different guys uh, played Mr. Wilson. Uh, Gail Gordon, who of course is associated in my head forever with uh, Lucille Ball, because he was on all of her uh, TV shows in one way or another. And, uh, oh God, the other guy who played Mr. Wilson, Joseph... Oh, I used to know this, and he actually came up in old radio. And if you listen carefully on old shows like Suspense, you can hear Mr. Wilson uh, in a completely different sort of a role. It's it's, it's kind of cool, but I can't. Joseph, oh no, drawing a blank, not searching, moving forward. Uh, 
We got to thank Doc, Chad, and Frank for uh, making this another great Overnight Scape Central. And it is. And there is nothing like the Overnight Scape Central. And next week, next week, this, this could be big because this is, uh, I, this may be it. This may be it. We are just like the comic strip, uh, the topic for next week's Overnight Scape Central. Now, come on, get your pen your paper. We're going to get this down and do this together. The topic is the end of radio. Uh, Yeah, what does that mean when I say that? And uh, is it happening? Uh, Is it just evolving into something else? But uh, that's what we're going to talk about here on the Overnightscape Central. And if you want to be one of us, uh, well, no, you're not disincluded if you don't feel like doing this. Uh, That that was a bad wording. But if if you would like to join us and chime in, uh, the email address, which you will need, is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. And the deadline for this uh, program is next Monday, June 13th, 2022. Get it to me in the evening time there, uh, and uh, your contribution will be included and uh, duly noted. And the email address, once again, is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. You you should do it. Write it down. Uh, Join us, and uh, we'll we'll tear this one apart because we, in a way, may be the successors to that night radio thing that might be over. It may be reaching or even have reached an end, and something still goes on, but it's like the zombie... Thing. Well, anyways, that's what we're going to talk about next week, and this show's already late. So with that, I thank you for your patience and ears, and we will all get together with any luck next week. And uh, meanwhile, set the controls for the heart of the fun.